difficulties. I'm hoping that you can hear me now. I actually have two microphones. We could perhaps go to a third if we needed to, but we're going to press uh, ahead uh, with our teaching time. So let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be reading in just a moment verses 25 through 37 as we continue our sermon series in uh, Who is My Neighbor? or Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh, I'm just kind of checking our tech folks. It looks like we're, we're still good, so we're going to keep pressing on. If we could go to the sermon slides when we get a second, that would be helpful. So uh, as we begin our teaching time, as a lot of you know, uh, my mom passed away last year, and we were uh, throughout the process of, of selling her home, and we live next door to my mom. Uh, and so uh, we sold that to a builder, and the builder has put up a new house, and the whole time the new house is going up, I'm saying to myself, and I actually will admit I prayed this a couple of times, I sure hope we have good neighbors. I sure hope the folks that move in next door, because they are right next door, so we really hope. You know, they're just a delightful young family with children who behave all the time and, and that sort of thing. The question I didn't ask myself, and I haven't asked myself, is, boy, I really hope I'm going to be a good neighbor to them. I really hope that in a year or two, whoever buys a house will go, isn't it great that we live next door to Tom and Cindy Ricks? Aren't they wonderful people who really genuinely are good neighbors? Why is it that we are so desirous to have a good neighbor, but we don't necessarily call ourselves to being a good neighbor? That's what I believe this passage is going to challenge us with this morning. So Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through 37, hear the word of God. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you, how do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. By the way, Lauren and family, thank you for helping us memorize that verse this morning. And he said to him, Jesus replies, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite when, he, Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he said to the innkeeper, take care of him. And whatever uh, he, excuse me, the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to him, the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Will you pray with me? 
Father, we are considering this summer uh, what it means to be a neighbor, what it means to be a neighbor in the context of the gospel, in the context of your saving grace in our lives. Father, we, we know just from these uh, past few months how desperately our nation, our communities, our neighborhoods, our families need believers in Jesus to be neighbors to be the neighbors that you have called us to. That starts with loving you, and then it moves into loving one another. Father, I know that my tendency is to look at what others ought to be doing and not into the mirror. And I pray this morning that you would help me to look in my mirror and that that all of us would be able to look in, in the mirror through the lens of this passage, that we would see what it means to follow you in our relationships with one another. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let it be a hindrance your teaching this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, according to Jesus, loving my neighbor as myself must be a primary focus of those who confess faith in Him as Savior and Lord. That's our sermon in a sentence this morning. That's where we're heading. According to Jesus, and then in quotations, because this is out of the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. It must be a primary focus of those who confess faith is Jesus the Savior and Lord. Now, notice that it says a primary focus and not the primary focus. There, there are several things that are going to be priorities for us as disciples of Jesus, but this is certainly one of them. And so I want to ask myself the question, how, how is that a primary focus in my life as we see it in the text? What I want to do before I get into the observations here, and I have three three observations and then a question I'm going to end with, so really four main points this morning. I want to make sure we understand the context of this passage. The context is actually an active opposition uh, under the guise of seeking uh, new life, seeking justification. This lawyer is coming, we see in verses 25 through 29, he's coming to put Jesus to the test. He, he, he doesn't believe Jesus' message. He is opposed to the notion that Jesus is the Messiah. So if you look at verses 25 uh, and following, uh, the lawyer stands up and puts him to the test. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, motives aside, that's a, that's a good question. In fact, that's the right question. That is the question. If there is an everlasting life experience, if the 70, 80, 90, whatever years I have on this planet are, are only a brief introduction into what we would call eternity, then the lawyer's asking the right question. Now, his motives are wrong, but that's the right question. The, the question is this, does self-justification work? <laughs> can, I, can I get there in my own power? So when Jesus says, what's written in the law, how you read it, he goes right to behavior, right? He goes right to my behavior should be, my attitude should be to love God, and then that should spill over into my human relationship. Again, motives aside, good answer. And Jesus says, great, go do that. You're on the right path. Isn't it great when you know you're on the right path and following God? When you go, you know, that, that action, that, that thought in my life was really put there by the Holy Spirit, and I'm going in a good direction. So Jesus applauds the answer, but that's not enough because this man is looking to do it without the Messiah. And so in a very smug way, I... In our house, we call it a very snarky way. He says, and who is my neighbor? 
come on, Jesus, Let, let's get down to it, thinking that he will have a better answer for Jesus. And so let's examine Jesus' answer to this question. The first part of the answer to the question is that bad neighbors are active. Bad neighbors are active. Look at verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. I'm defining bad neighbors being active as intentionally harming others to enrich myself. Intentionally harming others to enrich myself. So these were armed robbers. They overpowered this man. They ganged up on him. And they didn't just say, hey, if you give us your wallet, we'll go and we'll, we'll leave you alone. They didn't even bother to have that. They beat him mercilessly. And then they took everything that they wanted and they left him, this text says, half dead. They were intentionally harming him. They had no care for his life whatsoever. Now, probably if you're, if, if you're tuned in with us this morning, you're saying, well, thank goodness that isn't me. I haven't committed armed robbery lately. I haven't pistol whipped anybody. I haven't, I haven't you know, gotten a, a blackjack and gone and beaten someone senseless in order to, to rob them. So I am not an actively bad neighbor. I want to suggest that we think a little bit more broadly and a little bit more honestly about that notion. What about when I use my bad temper to bully the people around me? Is that not actively being a bad neighbor in a way that I believe enriches myself? What about when I gossip about another? What about when I slander another person, when I speak in a way that's negative towards another person and it isn't truthful and it isn't helpful, but I do it to do what? To enrich my own standing. Am I not at that point being an ABN, a bad neighbor? I would argue that, that the sin of the heart here is the bad neighbor sin of caring more about myself than others when I am dishonest. In my dealings with other people, whether it's a business deal or whether it's with a spouse or, or a family member or, or a next door neighbor. So that's what we're talking about neighbors. Is that not me actively being a bad neighbor? And if so, and I believe that's true, then I can be and have been a bad neighbor. Therefore, this notion of life and justification by my effort is immediately out the window. I cannot come to Jesus and try to justify myself on my attitudes and my behavior to the people around me. I can be, and I have been, and I believe this is true of all of us, a bad neighbor. Bad neighbors are active. My second observation of this is bad neighbor, neighbors are also passive. We're going to look at, at a priest, a clergyman, and a Levite, who's a person who has a deep understanding of the law. Perhaps it would be um, a graduate school professor in uh, the law of the day. This is a, these are both, uh, on the surface, wonderfully upstanding citizens to whom people look to for uh, spiritual and legal advice and direction. The, the, this is the cream of the crop. And yet they're passive... Neighbors, look at verses 31 and 32. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, 
a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. This passivity I'm defining as an inactivity in the face of need and the opportunity to help. That, that a bad neighbor can be active, and we, we talked about the robbers who were going after this guy, but also that we can be active in our bad neighboring, maybe not through, through physical violence, but through other types of harm that we can bring on others. But that's not the only way we can be a bad neighbor. Our, our second observation in this text is that we can be a bad neighbor through our passivity. So look at verses, if you would, 31 uh, and 30, uh, excuse me, 31 and 32. Now by chance, a priest, so that's, that's like a very highly respected uh, pastor, clergyman type of person, uh, was going down that road. And when he saw him, didn't stop and help, what did he do? He crossed by on the other side. He ignored it. He got, he got away from it, so he didn't have to deal with it. And then a Levite, who is a legal scholar, someone who maybe you know, is, is the chair of the legal department of Washington University, you know, someone who's really renowned and, and an expert in the law, and someone who, who spent their life uh, helping people understand the law so that people are treated fairly, someone we would look up to. The Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Didn't want to have anything to do with it. Both of these men were passive and therefore bad neighbors. We're defining passive as inactivity in the face of need or the opportunity to help. Inactivity in the face of need or an opportunity to help. A victim, someone who's hurting, someone who is in our proximity, who falls under the definition of neighbor, should be able to count on us for help. Uh, I read a story last year about a, a hockey player for the Washington Capitals who was sharing a story about coming home from a, a hockey game late one night, and he was exhausted, as you would be after playing a professional hockey game. And as he was driving down the road, he saw a car that had the flashers on on the side of the road. As he slowed down and looked, he saw a woman inside, so he pulled over. He got out, and it was a, it was a torrential downpour. It was raining, uh, as we say, like cats and dogs. And he goes up and taps on the window, and here's a woman with her Washington Capitals jersey on. She has two small children in the back seat. They're coming from the game that he just played and watch it, and they have a flat tire. And she's sobbing because she didn't have her cell phone with her. She had no way to call for help and no one to help her. And he got into the trunk of her car, got out the jack, got out the spare tire, and changed the tire for her in, in this rainstorm. And she was dumbfounded that a professional athlete would stop and would help her, as was the interviewer who was, who was recording this article. And he said, why on earth would you, would you stop and, and help? You didn't know who was in that car. And he said, I saw there was a woman there. I, I, I'm a husband. I'm a father. That could have been my wife and children. I would want someone to stop and help them. There's the expectation that someone in need should be able to count on a neighbor. And when they don't, when they can't, our passivity is actually having a grossly negative impact on the state of affairs in our communities and in our cultures. Martin Luther King spoke directly to this issue. I'm going to give you two quotes from Dr. King this morning because he speaks about the notion of passivity, of, of inactivity. Uh, and the first one is this. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. He went on to say, He who passively accepts evil is... Uh, evil is as much 
Uh, that actually is a long way away. I'm going to turn around and read it this way. He who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps perpetrate it. And he who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that passivity is being a bad neighbor. Jesus speaks to this directly when he talks about uh, judgment in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, if we could go to that screen, uh, it says this. Jesus is speaking as the judge. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So this, is, this is awful. What have they done? I was hungry. I was a neighbor in need, and you were passive. You gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, in a prison, and you did not visit me. Uh, then they will answer, the Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? It's like, Jesus, if I saw you had a need, I would certainly take care of you. You're, you're my neighbor. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. Jesus says, everybody's your neighbor. Everybody's your neighbor. Anybody you come into contact with, small, great, old, young, everybody, you should have a neighborly attitude Towards which leads us to the third observation in this text, that good neighbors can be surprisingly active. Look at verses 33 through 35. But a Samaritan, we're going to come back to that in just a second, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. We, we read that passage in the context of, uh, of our culture in our day and age, and we go, well, yeah, that's what Samaritans do. Well, of course he did. No, that's how the, the, it got started in the first place, that the notion of a good Samaritan actually came from an enemy. Samaritans and Jews hated each other with a passion. And I'm going I'm to pause here for a second, and I'm going to challenge you to think about somebody you really hate. I'm not talking about you know, somebody that you kind of mildly dislike. Uh, somebody that you absolutely, if you were in a room with them, you could not abide it. You, you wouldn't be able to bite your tongue. You would say exactly what was on your mind. Someone for whom you have loathing. And, and I believe that we could all think of, it might, it might be an abstract face. It might be the person who's conservative or the person who's too liberal or the person who's you know this or that. Uh, the person that does this in society, the person that does that in society. It might not be someone exactly you know, but it could be someone you know, someone who, who cheated you in a business deal, uh, an ex-spouse who you feel treated you terribly, uh, someone with whom you have grave disappointment, you don't feel like they, they stood with you. Who is it that we hate? Put them in this scenario, and they're face down in the ditch. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? There's a surprise here that would have made the crowd in Jesus' day gasp. What do you mean a Samaritan stopped and had compassion? That literally is not possible in human terms, and it's not in human terms. But this activity we're going to define as sacrificing or sharing the burden to help another. Sacrificing or sharing the burden to help another way back in the day, and I'm going back like 30 years, uh, Scott Vonderbury and I, with some high school students, did some backpacking in Colorado. We did it over several different summers, but there was a summer where we were backpacking when we came across 
uh, it was either two or three uh, young guys who had been out in the wilderness for about 30 days and their feet were so sore and blistered and bleeding that they couldn't walk. And this wasn't a day where you could kind of punch in the text and get help. Uh, this was a day where you needed to evacuate them and you needed to give them your help. You needed to sacrifice for them. You needed to carry their burden. Now, once you look at the backpacks in this picture, I've picked this picture in particular because that's what our backpacks look like. That's what we were carrying. And now we had to add their backpacks to ours and make a litter to help carry them out. Uh, one of them could kind of walk with help, but one of them literally could not stand up. And we had to make a makeshift, a makeshift litter to carry him out. And I took one of the backpacks and strapped it onto my backpack, and it was about a two-mile hike out. And, and I remember us, you know, grunting, just barely getting to the finish line, but, but doing it because we were like, you know what, if I was in this person's place, I would want someone to help me with my burden. There, there's a sense of understanding that, that the sacrifice ought to be made. And that's what God puts in our hearts. When we love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, what we're doing is we're, we're understanding how He has loved us. Can we understand there's a risk? There could be a cost involved. The, this doesn't say that the robbers aren't maybe lurking around the next corner. And now that they see somebody coming to help Him, they're going to jump out and get that guy as well. There's nothing in this, this text that would uh, negate the fact that his own people, his fellow Samaritans would say, you did what? You helped a Jew? Are you out of your mind? They are our enemies. Not to even mention the expense in time and money that he took. And I want you to also notice something. This story is not defined as a parable. It doesn't say, and then Jesus told them a made-up story. Now, Scholars differ on this. Some say it was a parable, and I think it's, that's okay. But Jesus doesn't point it out that way. And there are a lot of other places in the Gospels where it says this was a parable. This may have been a real-life experience. If this was a real-life experience, perhaps Jesus heard it from one of his fellow family members. Maybe an uncle uh, or a cousin had this experience. Uh, and Scripture doesn't say, so this is strictly surmising on my part, but maybe Jesus was going from... Jerusalem to Jericho one day, and he was the one who fell among the robbers. There's, there's no way of knowing, but this is a real expense. This is a real risk. This is a real cost. And the reward on the surface just isn't very much. It seems like the price is too high for, for what you get in, in return. Showing mercy uh, doesn't seem to, to really be all that important right now, so why bother? Well, I think the why bother is found in how Jesus wraps up this conversation, and there's more here than meets the eye. So Jesus finishes the story by, by the extensive care that the Samaritan gives, and then he looks back at the lawyer, and he asks him a question. But it's not, who is my neighbor? It's actually the flip side of that question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves, among the robbers. What Jesus is asking the Levite to do, and what he's asking you and me to do this morning, is to understand this from God's perspective. God is the one 
who has done for his enemies what we could not do for ourselves. That man could no more have picked himself up out of the ditch and walked down to Jericho and got medical attention that I could sprout wings and fly to the moon this afternoon. He was literally as good as dead. And the scriptures say that we're as good as dead and that we are enemies of God. And what does God do? He shows neighborly mercy. He takes up the burden of the cross. And he offers grace and mercy and life and justification that we could never earn for ourselves. And then what he says to us is let that help you learn to be a good neighbor to others. Allow the grace that I've given to you flow into the folks around you. Look at your world through the lens of an active, merciful neighbor's vision. And so the question that I have to ask myself and the question that you need to ask yourself this morning is simply this. Which am I? <laughs> which of these three represent me? And if I ask the question, where do I see myself in the story? The answer for me is I see myself in all three. There are times when I have allowed things like a, a harsh temper or not telling the truth completely. I've used those things in a way that have actively harmed other people. I'm guilty of being a bad neighbor. I've also been hurt by people's passivity and not helping me. I've been hurt by people saying, ah, I don't know that it's worth it. So I, I can see myself as, as the guy who needs help and maybe somebody wasn't there for him. And I, and I can't think of, of, of a handful of times, but it gives me hope where I have sought to care for others because of how God has cared for me. And I think that's probably true of all of us, that we can, we can see ourselves in every aspect of this. The question is then, who will I be going forward? And I don't think we just click and turn it on and we're always good neighbors for the rest of our lives, probably something we have to pray about every day. It's probably something we need to be mindful about on a regular basis because my knee jerk to my enemy is not to help. And so it's gonna take some discipline. It's gonna take some, some, some thinking on my part and some exploring. I keep using this term self-curiosity. What's keeping me from wanting to love everyone as a neighbor and trying to put my finger on that? But also, I think it would help us if we narrowed the field down just a little bit because when you think about this notion of loving your neighbor, it can be like, wow, that's everybody and that seems impossible. And are you asking me to single-handedly change the culture of the United States to a culture of love? I think that makes it too broad and therefore it makes us just give up. It makes us just throw our hands up and say, too much. So I want to keep it simple this morning. Who, who's one neighbor you could help today? You know, maybe it's, I loved what, what Lauren did in our children's message because she had her children there. She was teaching them that verse. That's a wonderful way to love your neighbor. Parents, are we creating within our children? Are we helping them see the opportunity to live as followers of Jesus with the people around us? Uh, am I setting an example? I mean, in, in, in the neighborhood or the office, which is, you know, kind of, we can't be out and about quite as much as we would like to, but the people I come into contact with day in and day out. Do they know that I want to care well for them, even if there's someone with whom I don't agree, even if there's someone that, that is towards that enemy camp, even if they are an enemy? Praise God if my enemy knew that I would actually care for them if they really need it. That would be absolutely miraculous. That would be something that only Jesus can do. But I want us to think in the context of just today, and then tomorrow morning, just, just tomorrow, Lord, who are you bringing across my path? 
Who's the, who, the one or the two, but, but who are the people you're calling me uh, to, to be actively neighborly towards? Help me to see that and help me not to miss it. So I'm going to wrap up with a quote from Mother Teresa because Mother Teresa had an amazing ministry experience. I mean, she started in the, in the 50s and by 1980, there were thousands of uh, Sisters of Mercy all over the globe. Tens of thousands of people were being helped. The masses were being helped by the inspiration of what Mother Teresa had done. But here's what she said uh, about being neighborly. I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look only at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can feed only one person at a time. Just one, one, one. You get closer to Christ, excuse me, uh, you get closer to Christ by coming closer to each other. Jesus said, and then she, we looked at this morning, whatever you do for the least of my brothers, you do for me. So you begin, I begin. I pick up one person. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean. But if we don't put the drop in the ocean, it would be one drop less. The same thing for you, the same thing for your family, the same thing for the church where you go, even virtually. Just begin one one, one. At the end of our lives, we will not be judged by how many diplomas we've earned, how much money we have made, or how many great things we have done. We'll be judged by, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was homeless, and you took me in. May God use the teaching of his word this morning to remind us that, that loving my neighbor as myself must be a primary focus of me as a disciple of Jesus who, who've come to him as my Savior and as my Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, this morning for Jesus clearing up the question, who's my neighbor? Uh, there isn't anybody that falls outside of that framework. Could be a friend, could be a family member, could be an absolute enemy. Father, that makes us, I'll speak for myself, that makes me nervous. <laughs> It frightens me because I, I don't necessarily want to, to be that way towards my enemies, and yet I know that that's what you did for me. So, Father, help me with my unbelief, with the obstacles that I put in my life that would keep me from being a neighbor towards those around me. Father, we thank you for not only Jesus teaching us, but we thank you for him living it all the way through the cross and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. That redeems us, that saves us. And so, Father, we pray that you would make us good neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.